Hello and welcome back to Impact Matters by B Cause. Um, we're an organisation that supports others to make a difference to people and planet. So in our last episode, we spoke to Matt and Vicky of the Morvar Sailing Project um, and had a great chat with them on the boat, the Helen Mary R, about the trials and tribulations of running a sail training organisation. And this week we're talking to uh, two directors of Par Track Limited, a community benefits society down in Cornwall, doing some amazing stuff in the health and wellbeing space. Um, this is our, our second full episode. It's quite a long one, um, so we've split it down into two chunks, um, and hopefully you'll get some good value out of this. Um, so if you've uh, liked any of our episodes so far, please like them and share them, and uh, do leave us a review, um, and uh, we'll get straight into Par Track. First off, I'm wandering around the park, just having a little look, uh, getting a feel for the place, and then I'm sitting down with Colin and Chris to discuss all things Par Track. Enjoy. So we just, uh, I've just come over to the pump track, which is this fantastic little um, tarmac and concrete skate park um, designed um, locally um, by guys uh, who are sort of, uh, BMXers. Um, and it's a fantastic little um, spot. Um, weekends, evenings, hundreds of kids are down here um, trying to kind of flip all sorts of jumps off the um, off the ramps and off the uh, off the curbs. It's a it's a smooth tarmac. Um, one of very few of these kind of uh, facilities around. And um, when it was built, yeah, it was absolutely groundbreaking for the area, and it's made such a difference. The young people have actually got something to do. Um, not without its problems, I know. And again, we'll talk to the guys about um, you know what, what comes with. Uh, running a, an open community facility like this later on but um, on the face of it this is an absolutely awesome little facility and I'm pleased to say it's still in really good repair um, bit of graffiti on it but you know you can't stop that and actually it gives it a little bit of um, character um, so yeah what a great little facility and whether you can hear that in the background but that's the mainline railway to London right next to us which is um, great for access means um, you know anybody from Cornwall all the way up can uh, if they wanted to could come down here so I'm just going to walk back over the uh, river or the Leet um, nice little bridge and we'll head back over towards the athletics track and the actual sort of hub of everything that goes on down here which is the community cafe um, changing rooms and a community library Hiya, all right could I get a coffee please just so I'll have a takeaway actually um, uh, flat white if you can do one that'd be lovely no that's it thank you Delighted to kind of be introducing Colin and Chris um, from Par Track. Hi guys, how are you? Hello, very good. Thanks, John. Yeah, very good. We're sitting in uh, Colin's lovely front room, um, just testing out a new bit of audio technology. So hopefully, it's going to work for you uh, this week. So um, Par Track Limited is a community benefit society, and we'll come back to that in a minute in terms of a, a legal structure. Um, but it's a fantastic little project, with not so little these days, um, based in between the villages of Tadreth, Par, and St Blasey. I've probably um, incorrectly categorised those as villages, but um, certainly Tadreth is a village. And um, it's uh, well, Colin, do you want to explain um, what Par Track is? 
Sure. Uh, I guess the best way to describe it is, well, we, in our materials, we described it in various ways. The green beating heart of the community, I think, was one iteration. Um, it's a it's a series of playing fields, green spaces, uh, car parking, and a very different building now than there was, but there's always been a small clubhouse on the site. Um, so, yeah, a green, an open green space in the middle of, uh, of a few different neighborhoods, villages, towns, I guess, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I guess what makes it unique is there is a running track there. It's one of only two competition-grade running tracks in Cornwall. So the name, I guess, comes from the track, but it, it has come to reflect that whole sort of space um, and all the various things it's used for. And we we, we haven't denied about what to call it, didn't we, for, for a, a while. And I should sort of, I suppose, say at this stage that um, one of the reasons for doing this podcast is that I was heavily involved at the outset of Par Track. Um, and we'll talk about how it all came about in a minute. But um, so, yeah, he heavily involved with Colin, and one or two others in you know um, making it come about so um definitely wanted to come back and do this as one of the first podcasts because it's it's a place that um yeah we've all spent a lot of time uh sweat and blood and tears um trying to make happen so yeah part track we, we came up that came up with that name because basically just that's what everybody called it um they said where are you going oh i'm going down part track and that was that was it, wasn't it? We 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 didn't really need much time to sort of think about fancy project names or brand names or anything. It no, was I think we, we probably spent more time than we needed to <laughs> trying to come up with something before really realizing understanding that it already had you know it had a brand already and yeah just sort of use that. Um, yeah, and it it, uh, it definitely is known. And I, I I mean I remember maybe you do too, but I remember being struck in those early days by, you know, we'd have conversations with kind of funding bodies or sports bodies from much further afield than just the local area. And the number of people who had some kind of a connection with that site was, it just kept surprising me. And they all knew it by the, you know, they all knew it by the same name. Uh, yeah, very validating the yeah. fact that it, it really was a cherished thing um, across a lot of people. Absolutely. Let's bring in Chris quickly because I'm conscious that me and Colin could go on for hours about the, the early days of it. And Chris, you were a, um, you're a director as well of um, Par Track and perhaps come on board a little bit later in its evolution. Yeah. Uh, Not that late because <laughs> it's only been going three years. But Well, I don't, I, I'm trying to work it out. It was before COVID, so 2018 possibly, maybe 2019. Um, so yeah, once it had already broken away from the council uh, as its own society, um, and so I came on board just as I think, just as the the pavilion was almost fully redeveloped. So um, I initially joined as part of um, the team that ran the park run down there, the junior park run, um, and then over the course of the next year, I think, was, was when the the building was redeveloped in it, into its current form, which is changing rooms, gym, and cafe. So that's, I've been there, what year is it now? 23. So it's hard to tell them four, four, four years or so. It doesn't work. And, and I think, um, I mean, three years of, 
uh, fully operating, but, you know, probably two to three years before that, before it even got off the ground in just trying to get the site into into the hands of the community, um, which was a huge effort, wasn't it, Colin? Yeah, I mean, there was kind of, you know, the first little bit was, you know, it was the... It was an exercise in trying to build a business case for it, trying to sort of build alliances and, and find counterparts who were interested. Um, and then and then there was the kind of, I guess, you know, oversimplifying, but that kind of helps sometimes. And then there was the phase of, you know, operating it before it, before the transfer was really done operating it in a completely sort of voluntary manner, just trying to build up the you know the sort of knowledge in the community of what was happening. Because we'd done a lot of we done a lot of outreach, but that that obviously is a very different thing to being able to put some things on that that the community can come down and participate in and and you know really get a very kind of visceral connection to what we're doing um yeah so so the history behind the site is that um it was run by uh the local authority it was a um there's a couple of football pitches there so you know the odd football match was going on um, some athletic, you know, athletics was being run down there, um, but really the site had been left to um, wither on the vine. I think is a good expression. So it hadn't had a lot of love investment for a long, long time, mm-hmm. and um, I think the community were alerted to the fact that potentially um, there was a risk that it could be it could be sold to developers. So I think around the time of. Uh, uh, the local authority was going out to tender for all the um, uh, sports centres across the county um, and the athletics track sort of came under that umbrella. Um, so it was all tendered out to a large um, sort of national organisation that actually happens to be a social enterprise itself. Um, so it was tendered out and the risk was because this was a facility that was underinvested in, um, hadn't, um, you know, didn't have a, a, a financially viable business model. You know, there was no money. It was being fully subsidised by the local authority. That there was a really real risk that the new organisation coming in to run all those health centres, sports centres, would um, would effectively close it down. Mm. And and I think it was at that point where you know what a handful of people in the community sort of started to realise that was a very real risk. Um, whether or not the site would have gone to housing development is another question, but th- there was a real risk that it would have been mothballed, um, and therefore, you know, the athletics club potentially were at risk. You know, local football clubs were, you know, may not have been able to play their games, and the site would have just gone further into disrepair. Mm-hmm. So I think um, there a gentleman in, or a, a chap in the in the community, a, a famous person called Doug Scrafton, was one of the first people to really get hold of this and, and Doug kind of spearheaded the challenge and he spearheaded the, the campaign to get this um, from the local authority. So it was really a, a, a kind of a, a group of early adopters of this who sort of got around the table and said, right, how, how do we kind of, how do we make this work? Um, and you'll have to fill in some gaps if I'm getting any of this wrong. But, no, no, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't know how else, I don't know, there must have been other ways that he had sort of conveyed that message, but... You know, definitely he had he had written a little 
article in the local free local newspaper um and that's I, that's where i saw it um and there were maybe 10 of us i think down at the track one evening um just to sort of hear what he had to say and yeah i mean i guess fear is a real motivating factor for people isn't it and there was a real sense that it's you know it seems the most likely use of that kind of space would be housing uh, that makes perfect sense and much like you i would have no idea how close to reality that ever would have been but it seemed justifiable um and yeah there was a small group who i think felt collectively there was there i remember still remember that evening but there was a there was a lot of doubt in the room as to how it would be possible to do anything about it and um i think you know a very interesting diversity of people were there and uh i guess that's a defining feature of the site really is that it's used by lots of different people for lots of different things and uh and in some ways luck i guess i think the group that sort of came together originally did a reasonably good job of representing a lot of those different sort of reasons for loving the place mm. uh you know each in our own way um and and also had just about the right kind of range of skills and expertise and and relationships and and availability really time availability that could be cobbled together into a, a group that would be effective in in trying to do it so and I remember in those early those early meetings, those early days. You know, the I think the message came through pretty loud and clear from the local authority. If you want this site, because that's what we had effectively made it very clear. You know, the community does not want to see this go. Um, you need to pull together a business plan, and you need to come to us and tell us how you're going to make it work. Because the onus was on the community to say how they were going to make it viable, mm. which is a tough. That's a really tough call for a community. You know, a very as you say, a sort of a disparate bunch, um, all coming from very different angles, but but all with the same kind of desire to see, you know, to see it thrive and, and, and perhaps, you know, how it used to be. Um, so, yeah, I suppose the next sort of couple of years, really, or year, year and a half, we spent trying to organise organize ourselves, trying to pull together a business plan that had some, <laughs> you know, had some teeth to it so that we could go to the local authority and say, here you go, we are serious take it off the, you know, take it off the market. Um, and and we did it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's lucky, I guess, wasn't it, that there were, there were two of us in that room who had written business plans before mm. and knew, knew how to put it together. Um, it, very, it was always very obvious to me that the council, I think in almost every involvement that, I had with with them and, and the various people that represented the council that you know, they were they were incredibly keen for us to manage to do it and um, and had to you know obviously they had their own liabilities to worry about and they wanted to make sure that I think the primary one was they weren't going to waste a lot of time and effort on this only to find that it all sort of just fizzled out into nothing and they had 
take it back and you know reverse their original plan. So they were determined to make sure it was we had a we had a good plan, but they gave us every opportunity to to do it. And um, and that you know I remember some of the the meetings with you know kind of funding networks that had that had been helpful to us and and also gave us opportunity to talk to other other people doing similar things across the country that sense of of help from the local authority was not a un, was not a universal feature um so we benefited greatly from that i think um without it who knows what would happen but yeah no actually i couldn't agree more on it and you know the local authority um put various you know bits of funding into the into the pot didn't they to help you know make sure that there was a smooth transition and that um whatever community organization came out of it you know we weren't struggling from day one yeah, um which yeah, was really important definitely and i think it it um there's they seemed always to be much happier at and you know i think this is usually the case but it seemed always to be much happier at capital funding making capital funding available than operating funding and and i think you know in some ways that reflects the fact that really you know we have we have we got to the point of taking on a long-term lease for the site but it's still a council-owned property and really that capital funding is they're investing in their own asset and uh and as long as we were proving responsible managers of that investment and i think we did a good job of that of it being clear that we were serious that we had the competence to know what we we're doing and how to do it it made it feel like a reasonable place for them to be willing to invest you know they, it wasn't they weren't handing out money in that sense they were investing in their own asset absolutely and, and you know this this is not the only facility like this across the country there are you know there are lots of great examples of community assets um, which have been transferred from local authorities you know into community hands so it, you know it is something that happens um you know there's a um a community asset transfer uh, unit or there certainly used to be within um, government to help with these sorts of things there's um you know community right to buy um and also um not that we had to use it for this but there is a there is a specific um um I, I, whether it's legislation or whether it sits within the social value act but you can actually sort of uh, write to your local authority and identify a community asset um if it's if it's had you know local people using it and meeting in it and there's a risk of it being lost to the community mm. then you can actually register it with the local authority as a community asset and it gives you a sort of a six-month moratorium before it can be sold. So not that we had to use it in this case, but just for anybody else who's listening, you know, there, there are things out there, which means if your local pub, village shop, uh, community centre, village hall, any of these things are at risk, there are ways that you can kind of get at least get a moratorium on it to give you the time to be able to, you know, get the support together. Yeah. And I think that's what, you know, we, we were lucky. We didn't need that in terms of time, but we certainly you know, it took a lot of time to pull together the business plans to try and find and identify funding, you know, and come up with viable models for how it could work, um, which which it certainly is. Is it, a, is it a relatively easy, easy win for the council in that situation? All the other situations, imagine you're the council and you've got, you've got an asset that you um, don't really want to 
put much funding into if you're managing it yourself. If someone comes forward with a fully funded business plan, and it's, you're going to retain ownership of the site, it's kind of yeah, happy, happy days, isn't it? Really? To a certain extent. And I think I remember, it seems to remember that was one of our key kind of sales. Look, you know, we'll take it on. Um, 125 year lease. We'll look after it. We'll do our bit, very best. But ultimately, if the if the community fails, it does go back to the local authority. They're in no worse position, probably in a better position because we, you know, we we certainly found lots of funding to to improve the site. So yeah, you're right. There is there is that. Um, yeah. So in terms of the kind of next stages. Um, it's a little bit hazy in my mind because that was a few years ago now. But you know, we were successful. Um, the local authority transferred the asset across, um, and then um, then the hard work really started. Because actually, you know, it, we'd spent a couple of years campaigning and trying to do all that, and then actually, now now you now you've got to run something. Now you've got a community business, and you've got community business you've got to run. Um, so one of the first things we did was set it up as a community benefit society or a charitable community benefit society so colin we've we've talked lots and lots about that and the and the pros and cons and why did we do it that way and should we have done something else what's your kind of take on that well i guess the the real fruits of having done that have not yet kind of have not yet come through i think because the you know the the real reason for it was for the the ability that being a CBS gives you to be both be both re- registered with HMRC as a charity and to be able to sell shares and raise money in the local community by sort of by virtue of ownership I guess um, and that was really important to us for the money but also for the for the ownership side of it for for being able to really broaden broaden the, the kind of definition of the community that we're that we we're serving but that we kind of represent because you know as it stands and, and that hasn't that hasn't come to pass yet so we there have been a long series of reasons why it was never the right time to launch a share offer um some being very, some being very local reasons, and some being, you know, COVID, for example, was a has been a, a huge feature of the short life of this of this project. But um, you know, so that that was a that was a, a very difficult time to think of doing something like this. Um, you know, recently the cost of living cost of living pressure that people are under and uh, makes it would make it a very strange time to be going out to the community and trying to raise money. Um, so, so let's let's just unpick that a bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm just conscious that you know people listening will probably really not sort of have heard of this before. So, a community benefit society is something that comes under the um, the Cooperative and Community Benefit Society Act 2014. It's something that's um, registered with the Financial Conduct Authority, isn't it? The FCA, yeah. as opposed to Companies House. Um, in this instance, because um, Partrack is a, a charitable community benefit society, it's also got kind of dual registration with the Charity Commission in effect. Yeah, I do, we we the the registration is with HMRC as a charity. Yeah. And and the thing, so there's there's sort of two or three really kind of key benefits to to being a CBS. Um, one, and I think 
you know, almost the most important, I think, for, for us at the time was it's, it's asset locked. So there, there is absolutely no way someone can come in and take it over and do something completely different with that site. So, you know, the, the asset is locked, um, is locked into the kind of the governance of the whole, the whole um, organization. So um, that's a really important thing. But then the democracy behind it is also something that's really important. And that's where you're talking about the, the kind of the ability to sell shares. A, a, a community benefit society is um, uh, other than a kind of a PLC, one of the only ways you can actually do a public share offer. Um, and the beauty of the kind of the share offer in this context is that um, you're only entitled to one vote. So no matter how many shares you buy, you only get one vote. So no one has any more power in the in the kind of the democratic running of the of the organisation. Now, uh, Parkrat hasn't actually gone down the route of doing a, a share offer yet, but it's certainly something we've talked about that you know at some point there will be the right time to go down that route. Um, you've got an initial bunch of founders who are all founding directors and shareholders, um, but you know at some point you will be able to do that and you'll be able to raise some investment. So it might be that in five years' time, ten years' time, there's a big project on the on the horizon and you can go out, raise some, raise some investment from the community. Uh, people can put in £10, £100, £10,000 if they like, get their share um, or get their shares and get their get their vote and be part of that democratic running. So it's also, it's a really great way of kind of getting community engagement and ownership of something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, this, is, this, is, this is a live issue uh, for the board. It has been for years and remains one. Um, that kind of balancing between the, the financial needs and, you know, we know... Uh, in our case, we know that in some number of years, between seven and twelve, as best guess, that the running track will need to be resurfaced, which will cost. You know, if the last time it was done is any reflection, it will cost three to four hundred thousand pounds, and we have committed to being responsible for at least a good chunk of that money you know it's not it's never been it's never been specified that we would not reserve the right to go and try and find more funding to do it but we we definitely feel a responsibility to be able to you know parts of our running this as the community and for the community is to be able to cover the costs of keeping it there and that you know that's a big one that we know we're facing so there will be a financial need uh, over and above just keeping the lights on now. And, you know, it doesn't make good sense to try and leave the share offer until that is a, you know, is a really urgent, it's a really urgent thing that the community can rally around. Or is the broadening of the, the kind of ownership of the place uh, a more important thing to be done sooner rather than later? So that's, we don't have an answer to it, but we definitely spend a good amount of time mulling it over. Is that fair to say? Plenty of mulling, yes. And there's different views if you speak to different members of the of the board. So, yeah, yeah for me, it's, it's a it's a timing thing. It's uh, I think it's definitely having a if we were able to get an influx of, of cash for the for the resurfacing of the track, then that's kind of a priority from my point of view. Um, but obviously the timing has to be right because perhaps the environment isn't isn't that good at the moment to be going out and asking people to invest 
invest money, especially if we want to retain the ownership in 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 the community and our community. It's it's kind of quite quite mixed where we are. So there's there's quite affluent people, but there's there's quite a lot of uh, less wealthy people as well. And it, and it, it would be really key for me to be able to get all of the, all members of the community involved um and so it feels certainly at the moment it feels a long time to be asking people to to stump up some cash uh, although on the flip side of that the great thing about um a kind of community share offer is that you can pitch it at the whole, the whole variety of levels so um it's more it can often be more to do with um the rewards and and the um yeah, the democratic sort of engagement than it is about how much people are putting in. So I think, you know, uh, and this is a bit of detail that we, we went through, I think, yeah. uh, you know, a few years back, obviously, you know, the, you know, it does sit in an area of, of, of deprivation. Let's be really honest, there's pockets of deprivation that are some of the worst in the country, you know, around the corner. So um, we know that not everybody can afford to necessarily put much in, but if £10 was the lowest, you know, um, kind of, you know, share value, if you like, um, everybody can participate, potentially a lot of people can participate in that, but also equally someone can put in a thousand pounds if they wanted or 10,000 pounds. Um, so I, th I suppose the flexibility of having it there as an option means you haven't written that one off. It's, it's still there. Yeah. Um, definitely there. But I, I can see why. Yeah. It's a t timing issue. It's a, it's a challenge to know when to, pull the pin on it <laughs> also i think it's a we are a bit reluctant certainly from my point of view with having the expertise to be able to deliver it in the correct manner mm. as well mm. um, there's certainly expertise that i don't have so we and um, i'm sure any of us have got them so we would be look we'd be able to look at bringing yeah. somebody in yeah. to help us out with that uh and so once you kind of do that, then you're kind of committing, I suppose, to some degree with regards to timing. Mm. So there's no doubt, it's, it, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's, you know, there's a lot of work in it. Um, and it, it, you know, it can create a bit of noise and, you know, um, all that sort of thing. But yeah, okay, it's, it's quite quite interesting sort of. Mm. Stuff seems to get in the way as well, doesn't it? Just general other stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's such a big issue that mm. it's kind of, we're kind of kicking it down the road a little bit as well, I should imagine. Um, but yeah. Can you, are there any other things, Colin, that, you know, um, going back to kind of that run up to getting the transfer that, you know, um, you know, spring to mind in terms of real challenges that you had to kind of get through? Well, I mean, there, I guess, you know, finding and convincing funders that it was a good that it was a it was worth their time that was that was a challenge um and i know you had a big part in a lot of those conversations um and i guess you know we one of the kind of one of the early things that we really wrestled with was was trying to decide how you know how kind of how, how to where to land on the the kind of spectrum between it being a very as it had really begun a, a completely voluntary undertaking tr trying to keep operating costs as low as possible 
in order to minimize the amount of funding we needed to find. Uh, that's at one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum was, you know, really trying to decide what kind of scale operation would be really financially sustainable and be really ambitious about about reaching those kind of targets and 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 accepting the the kind of financial burden that would come with trying to build and operate something on that kind of scale and you know i remember the the, i mean so the group was really interesting um and i don't know what your take on it kind of either was but there was it really struck me how there was real diversity in that in in that group um of how how much kind of expertise people had in running community groups businesses you know writing business plans all, all that the kind of stuff that was really needed to be done some people were very experienced in some parts of that and other people had very strong roots in the community no expertise whatsoever in any of this kind of stuff others had real long-term vested interests in the you know the football clubs and the athletics clubs that used the place and a real determination to do whatever they could to make it work but no real sense of how what that meant and how to go about it and and so that that kind of that diversity was really interesting when having this conversation around what are we trying to do? Are we trying to run? Are we trying to run a voluntary community thing on a shoestring, or are we trying to build a business that will be able to sort of outlive us? I guess is one part of it. When you get to sign a hundred twenty-five year lease, I think everybody realizes it's supposed to outlive us. But so that that was interesting and a difficult conversation. Um, and you know, in the end, we decided, and I think everybody agreed with it. There was there was some real hesitance, and there were some of the people at this time who had been really instrumental in in the group getting to that point when we decided that we had to sort of legally incorporate, and that we had to be raising that we had to be raising money ourselves in order to get uh, you know almost match funding that there were people who weren't comfortable with that level of exposure and risk and um, and formality. And so, you know, some of the some of the earliest people, that was the point at which they had to sort of move away. And um, and that has that, you know, that's kind of continued uh, in all the time since. It's a very different board now than it was then. Um, yeah, I, well, I, I think it was a really interesting sort of journey through all that. Um, and my, I suppose my take on it is, um, I think it would have been difficult to have got to where you've got to now, three years on, and talk about how kind of successful, etc. But um, I think it would have been really hard to get to the point you're at now if um, you hadn't adopted that slightly more business focus sort of you know we need to have a business model we need you know we need to work out what our income sources are going to be um i think if it had been run in a uh, voluntary way um 
I think it would have really, really struggled. And I think, yeah, like you say, for some people taking on that legal liability, um, being a director, um, even if it's a limited liability, you know, just the, the responsibility of having, you know, potentially having staff in the future and running something which has got, you know, um, food operations or whatever it might be. It was, it was too much for some, wasn't it? Um, but I think it had to be that way. And I think I, was, I often kind of re reflect on my role during all of that, because obviously I, I kind of straddled two or three different roles. Um, you know, there was part of me being a local person, a user of the park, um, you know, uh, wanting to see it survive. There was part of me being someone with, some background and experience in social enterprise community business so therefore i had a bit of knowledge i could bring to it um and then you know there's part of me being um someone who actually became a director for a while so i kind of struggled that but i think if i hadn't i wonder whether you know i was able to bring a bit more of that focus and um sort of i suppose the community business model which um actually one of our early funders power to change um who, who kind of uh, that that's their big push is to sort of see more community businesses run by people in the community i think being able to bring that kind of um input into it i think yeah it, it, i don't think it'd be there now if we'd have, if we'd have done it in a traditional sort of uh charity model uh, without that real strong community business focus yeah so that's my kind of take on it really i suppose if i had it i'm not just saying about me but you know if doug and yourself and you know um carl and one or two other steve hadn't brought that kind of focus you know how are we going to make money it wouldn't be here today um but we've done it in the right way and it's been done in a way that is totally community focused but you know we were really insistent right at the outset on you know how's the cafe going to make money you know how are we going to kind of get get some more members how are we going to increase participation so that we've got more people coming through the door and paying for it um yeah yeah and it's been a, you know it's been a gradual it's been a gradual growing up i guess in that sense the whole way through um you know, Chris, we were trying to figure out when it was you guys joined as board members, but I, I do know that Chris and Becky were the first directors to have joined after the initial sort of founding. Yeah. Um, and we were all very proud of ourselves. We've managed to attract uh, some competent directors like you, like you two. Um, but, you know, it was, a, it was a good example of the, you know, the fact that it... As, as a as an organization it was changing as a as a kind of project it was changing it, it was getting more well getting more professional i think is probably the is probably the best word to use in you know in lots of ways um you know we we had we had gotten funding initially for a part-time kind of business development support which we had used to effectively have have a, a part-time general manager um, who, you know, did a wonderful job of doing some business development, but also cutting the grass when it would desperately need to cut every second day in the summer. And, you know, that allowed the board to play a slightly different role because there was some capacity there. But the point then came when it was obvious that, you know, that kind of halfway house wasn't, serving it wasn't really working and we had to make that you know had to go through that conversation again and made the same decision that actually we needed to you know really invest 
commit to being able to afford a full-time general manager and uh, ground staff in order to make sure it was it was kind of managed in a in a in a the kind of way it needed. So I'm gonna we'll just call a little uh, break there because I think we've got to a natural point where. Um, you know, we've talked about the early evolution of the site, um, and, and now we're getting to that point where, you know, the site's been transferred, um, we've got some funding, things are starting to move, but actually you're now moving into the operational phase where yeah. you've got to start really making it work. So that's the end of part one of Partrack. Uh, the next episode will be dropping soon and um, hopefully you found that really useful. Certainly uh, I found it really interesting talking to Chris and uh, Colin about the evolution of Partrack and uh, what they've developed since. And now really looking forward to the next uh, episode where we'll go into more depth on uh, the current setup and uh, what's what's happening in the future. So uh, if, you, uh, if you're getting something out of these podcasts, please do share and like and uh, give us some reviews. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you.